This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hi, you're listening to Quick to Listen, the Christianity Today podcast where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event. I am Caitlin Beatty. I'm the print managing editor of Christianity Today magazine, and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host, Morgan Lee. Hi, Morgan. Caitlin, how are you? I am doing just fine. How are you? Everything's going really well. Hi, everyone. I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and today we are joined by Alyssa Wilkinson. She is CT's critic at large, but you can also find her writing in a lot of other places, including the Washington Post and Pacific Standard and New York Magazine's Vulture. Alyssa, how are you? I'm doing well. Good to talk to you guys. Yeah, good to hear your voice. We see your byline so much, but we rarely actually hear your voice. So thanks for joining us today. I really exist. (laughs) Yes, you do. (laughs) So as we know, most controversies and topics in the news come with a lot of complexity and tension. And on the podcast every week, we we first try to acknowledge those tensions and then work out among Mm -hmm. the three of us with a guest how Christians can respond. This week, we are going to talk about a movie that just came out last Friday. You've probably heard of it. God's Not Dead 2. This is clearly the sequel to God's Not Dead. Um, <laughs> it opened this past weekend fourth in the box office. It was far behind the Batman versus Superman <laughs> drama. Did you watch that, Caitlin? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, it was a little bit behind another sequel, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2, and it, it garnered about 8 million worldwide. Now, most listeners probably have heard of the original God's Not Dead. It was an independent film that was released in 2014. It was kind of a breakout hit among faith-based films, grossing about 60 million that year. Um, so, For those of you who haven't seen the film, um, and you don't need to have seen the film to actually benefit from our conversation, but just to give a little bit of a primer, the newest movie is about a woman named Grace Wesley, and she is a public high school teacher, and she answers a question about Jesus in her classroom. It's a pretty innocuous answer and eventually ends up in a trial courtroom to try to protect her job and ultimately defend her faith. So that's the 32nd uh, summary that you need to know just as background. So now we are going to really quickly get our gut check in. This is the part of the show where we just get a quick sense of everyone's initial responses to the topic of the week. We ask these to be in 140 characters or less if in spirit, if not in the letter. Alyssa, I know you've written about God's Not Dead 2. You've seen it. What's your reaction, your gut check on this topic? Yeah, I left the film feeling like, in some respects, it was better than its predecessor, and in some key respects, it was more troubling to me than its predecessor. Okay. What about you, Morgan? You have not seen the film, but surely you have heard of this cultural phenomenon. My reaction was, is the same actress that played Sabrina, the teenage witch, now played an evangelical Christian? Well, she doesn't just play one. She is one. But yes, and you were not allowed to watch Sabrina. Witchcraft. Hello, Caitlin. <laughs> that and Harry Potter, all those taboo things from my childhood. <laughs> well, my 140 characters or less reaction, I saw the film on Monday night and I went in with a very studied 
open mind and it was maybe like Alyssa, I found it more troubling than I actually expected. But I also understood why it was resonating and why it was coming out at this particular cultural cultural moment. Right. (laughs) So we're going to move quickly into the main discussion. And I want to talk a little bit about kind of why these movies exist right now in this cultural moment. What itch are they scratching for American Christians? I think it's safe to say that the intended audience is conservative Christians, but why is there an audience for these films? Why did the first one do so well? And kind of what felt need are they meeting? So we'll start with you, Alyssa. Yeah, I think it feels like it's meeting two needs for the audience um, pretty well, judging from the box office returns. The first is that a lot of evangelicals uh, in particular have felt for a long time that they're not depicted well on screen or when they are, it's sort of some idea of what a Christian is like rather than what they actually believe they're like. And so the films give instead uh, recognizably evangelical types uh, who we can see as heroes. They're the winners. They're the ones who uh, sort of end the day with uh, on the upside of whatever conflict it is. And then also, you know, obviously a lot of evangelicals and, and Christians more generally are worried about things like uh, religious liberty and freedoms and um, however you define those. These films definitely tap into those fears and also the desire to to have their rights protected or to be able to fight for your rights or um, fight for what you believe and win. Um, and so the films are very good at depicting those kinds of stories and then making it at the end it clear, you know, making it very inspirational. Yeah. What about you, Morgan? I was actually reminded some of the Oscars So White campaign from a couple hmm. of months ago, which was this reaction by different people of color who are big aficionados of the movies um, and of their desire to see more of their stories represented on screen. Mm hmm. And I think that there's some of that same desire and hunger from evangelicals to see a world that looks like the one that they know and the one that they live in Mm -hmm. depicted not just in a book or in a magazine, but in a much larger platform and format for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something that's a little bit easier to be evangelistic about something when you can literally bring someone, you know, to see a movie that endorses or espouses these values and this world that you live in. Yeah, I think there's something completely different than just seeing it a little bit on a television show or seeing a pastor that you're a fan of being interviewed or interacted with. Mm -hmm, And that mm -hmm. cinema in particular, it feels very much like, you know, you're recognized, you're gotten. Yeah, and it feels like the evangelistic aims of this movie are pretty explicit. There are a couple different gospel messages presented in the film And then there's this call at the end of the film. There was also this call at the end of the first film. You were encouraged to text everyone you know the message, God's not dead, as kind of a way to, like, conceivably as a way to start a conversation about faith. But also a very good viral marketing tactic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, just looking at the Facebook page for the film, there are a lot of people who are really excited about this film and who feel like, Finally, I, this is a movie I can see, you know, this is a movie I can vote with, vote for with my dollars at the box office. And, um, so one of the dominant themes obviously is kind of this courage or strength to endure persecution. 
Um, you know, the, the teacher, Grace Wesley, is kind of sanctioned by the principal of her school for talking about Christ in a public setting. The ACLU eventually comes along as the horrible boogeyman we all know and, and, and wants to take Grace Wesley to court. So I'm wondering, is it appropriate or how appropriate is it to talk about something like persecution in the United States over these you know, in some cases, the these disagreements or sanctions are really happening in places of higher education or public schools or workplaces. How might we talk about those instances while also being mindful of persecution happening on a global scale? Yeah, it's a tricky question because when you're watching it, the movie, and then you're thinking about people being killed for their faith, you know, by groups like ISIS and such, it's... um you know, it's hard to know how to navigate that kind of thing. I think that it is true that people are experiencing these kinds of sanctions. And certainly the film tries to make that case at the end by scrolling past a bunch of cases in which people have experienced conflicts over religious space in particularly public education settings. I, I would have trouble calling that persecution, perhaps. It feels more like maybe it's part of the democratic process of groups of people trying to figure out how... Um, things like religion come into public spaces. And that's not something that that's something that's been changing as the religious landscape of the United States is changing. But, you know, certainly it's not that it's not the fact that just because it's we're not getting our heads chopped off that we shouldn't talk about it. Uh, but it, it might also be true that we have to uh, have more of a sense of what our brothers and sisters go through abroad in mind when we're making this kind of film and maybe mitigate the way that we depict ourselves and depict the, the heroes and the villains. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the film makes a little bit of an attempt of, at that by having a character who's um, from both films, who's a Chinese student who's um, studying abroad in the United States. And in the first film, he comes to faith as a result of this debate in the classroom. And then in the second film, he's sort of feels a call to ministry, but uh, as you'll recall, he experiences a little bit of persecution himself. Um, So the film is definitely trying to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I think he says something like, observing this court case will prepare me to go be a pastor back in my homeland or something like that. It's like, yes, I'm pretty sure that the situation is going to be harder in China than it is (laughs) than it is in Arkansas, which is where the story takes place. But there is at least this kind of attempt to nod at the global context. Yeah, I mean, the tricky thing, of course, is that when you try to compare your own uh, conflicts with persecution abroad, you mind, you wind up casting your opponent here in the same mold as the opponent abroad. And that means that we end up pairing the ACLU and ISIS, which seems like a potentially fraught uh, <laughs> <laughs> comparison to make. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. There's definitely a part of me that wonders if we just don't necessarily know how to talk about cultural 
and religious changes that have been going on in our country. And so uh-huh. in many ways, you could see God's Not Dead as an artistic response to uh-huh. trying to figure out how to talk about some uh-huh. of these subjects uh-huh. that are clearly on the forefront of many, many, many evangelicals' minds and, and wondering what the range of emotions that is possible to feel are really okay. You know, mm. To what extent can you grieve? Can you be angry? Should you just move on? And I would say that within the evangelical world, there's a variety of perspectives about how evangelicals should feel about these changes to our culture and to the extent that talking about God is something that is appropriate in a more public sphere. But part of me wonders if, if we're unhappy with the way that um, this film is actually doing that you know, are our churches, are our publications providing space for people to have mm. these conversations, especially at the extent to which, you know, you wonder, these should these conversations be happening in-house, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe some of the emotions that people feel when they watch God's Not Dead are something that would work much better within a church yeah. to talk about this yeah. or within a Bible study, but that others of us feel like, well, are they airing our dirty laundry by producing a film <laughs> that may showcase some of the reactions that we're not actually mm-hmm. wanting to let everyone know that this is kind of how we're feeling about this stuff. Yeah, and definitely. And Alyssa, you, you've written about this movie. And I think you alluded to this sense of like, I don't, this movie does not represent me, you know, that there's a there's a range of ways that Christians in the United States could be responding to major legal or cultural changes. And this movie, it doesn't speak for all evangelical Christians. So I'm glad that you brought up the role of the local church, Morgan, in helping us kind of wrestle through various emotions we might be having about cultural changes. And what struck me about God's Not Dead, too, is that We have a few scenes that take place in a local church with a beautiful stained glass window, but there are actually no, we don't see like the life of the church and we really don't even see like Christians gathered, you know, in a community. There's very little community in this movie. It's very much about the individual. I mean, it's interesting that we have two ministers in the movie uh, who do come in and a whole bunch of of, uh, apologetics people, but, but not church services. And I think some of it is that uh, we know certainly that evangelicalism itself is really, really multifaceted and people have very different beliefs about how church should be done. And a lot of these movies need to bank on the idea that they're not going to offend viewers as much as possible, their target viewers. And so I think it seems to me like that's a fairly calculated attempt to just sidestep some of those issues. You know, and then also, I don't know that a lot of people think their local church has a lot to do with this topic. I'm not sure that's always on everyone's, the forefront of their minds. I know it hadn't been for most of my life. And so, you know, what we do Monday through Saturday doesn't always show up on Sunday and vice versa. Yeah. And it's also just, it's easier to lionize an individual. That's right. Than like a whole community. Yes. So one of the, you know, I think it's, it's safe to say that a lot of people in this movie's targeted audience are feeling fear about some of the legal and mm-hmm. cultural changes in this country. And, you know, they're, they're afraid that there will be this time in the not too distant future when, for example, one of the subplots of the film is that the pastors in this community receive this subpoena that they have to submit sermons from the past three months mm-hmm. for government review. Like that's, that's kind of the scenario that makes us really nervous. Um, yeah. And I, I was almost wondering with this film again, 
full disclosure, right? I have not seen this, but if there's certain like either potentially generational divides that are going on about who, who is seen as quote unquote the enemy hmm. in the traditional sense. One thing that strikes me, right, is that many of the non-Christians that I know today are people who grew up in Christian households and are people that are maybe in my family, maybe people that I went mm-hmm. to church with growing up, mm-hmm. and that there's this extreme kind of like othering of people who yes. aren't Christians rather than seeing them as part of this like larger unit that we have to talk to these people, not because yeah. they're those people, right. but because they're people that we love and are in relationship with. Yes, yes. I thought... The movie, one of the weakest parts of the movie was the way that it portrayed non-Christians. Anyone who wasn't a Christian in the movie had like a devilish grin and said things like, we believe in a non-theistic worldview, which is not something like a non-Christian would say. It's what Christians think a non-Christian would say. It's a stroke of genius casting Ray Wise as like the vi- the villain of this because, you know, he in Twin Peaks played a guy who's literally possessed by the devil. He's also played the literal <laughs> devil in other other films. So, talk about being typecast, but you know, he looks he looks like what we think the devil looks like yeah. for for reasons. He yeah, so those eyebrows. Um, and, you know, this film actually had it over its predecessor only in that there's one guy who's not Christian who seems like he might be an okay dude. But as you find out near the end, you're pretty sure he's going to he's gonna convert. Uh, I tweeted something about how you know that moment is coming when he shaves into a worship leader beard. Um, <laughs> and that, that does happen in the film. Well, there's clearly like a romance budding, right? That's like the single Christian woman's dream is like... Yes. I'm going to meet a hunky non-Christian guy and introduce him to Jesus. I'm I'm not speaking from personal experience or anything. I've just like heard that. <laughs> but um, I, I wonder too, if like when they're drawing up all these different characters who seem to either fall into like the highest aspiration of what every Christian should aim for or the lowest of the low form of human being, if that's the sense that, you know, you don't want to make sin look appealing or mm. legitimize, legitimize something that, you know, you personally believe is illegitimate mm-hmm. or the wrong way. And there's this nervousness about overcomplicating mm-hmm. how people are or just condoning, condoning larger than what you may feel comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot like watching a Western with guys in white hats and black hats, right? So you know who the good guys are and you know who the bad guys are visually. And that's not our maybe our mode of filmmaking today, but it it was something that used to be done. So a final question I'd love to talk to you, especially Alyssa, about is the role of fear, you know, fear being a pretty um, pervasive emotion that a lot of Americans, especially perhaps American Christians have right now, and kind of the role of stories or storytelling, including uh, major release feel- films and helping us kind of deal with our fears. Right. A lot of people talk about things like horror film, for instance, as a way of cathartically releasing our fear uh, without actually going through the experiences ourselves. Uh, and a lot of people talk about how you would never watch a horror film in a country where you were actually experiencing that kind of fear every day. And it's interesting how much of this film, maybe we couldn't call it horror, but it certainly has that aren't you frightened? You know, here are these people coming to take away your rights. And, you know, I don't want to give it away. But if you stay for after the credits of the film, there's a very, you know, clear scene of like, this is something that is terrible and could happen to you. And it's basically setting us up for the next installment of the film. And there will be another installment. 
Oh yes. Oh yes. Yes. And, and, you know, and the film knows that that's why there's that little bit after the credits, but I think, you know, that's, it's, it's saying to you, aren't you afraid of this? And then when you say yes, then it's saying, well, look, you will triumph anyhow. I like this idea myself, but I also know that it's, you know, again, if we want to talk about persecution, like sometimes you don't win, even if you are, um, even if you believe all the right things and have your apologetics straight and pray, sometimes winning looks very different. Uh, you know, in the Bible, winning looks very different for people than it, than it does in this film. So while it's, certainly tapping into that fear, it also gives us an answer that to me feels a little bit easy or a little bit like fantasy or wish fulfillment more than reality. And, you know, and we all love like inspirational sports movies or inspirational law movies. And in, in many ways, that's what these films have been. But I do worry when people see them and then say that they inspired them to stand up for their faith or whatever, like what are going to happen? What's actually going to happen to those people if it doesn't turn out the way they want. Like Lee Strobel is probably not going to come to your court case. Exactly. And, you know, by the way, this would be a civil suit, so there wouldn't be a jury in this case. Anyhow, right. But right. that's beside the point. Um, yes, there were some legal issues with a few legal with this issues. movie. <laughs> but, you know, those of us who grew up in church know that it, it if you learn that uh, other guy is bad and that uh, Jesus will save you from everything the way you think he will, then when you encounter a different situation, when you grow up, that can suddenly make it very hard for you to, hmm. how do you know what to believe about the rest of it? So that's what, I guess, if we're talking about fear, that's what I fear when I see these films. It's one of the things that I fear is for young people who are watching them who maybe don't have the filter that adults might have. I think as Christians, we have a particular responsibility to to consider the ways that we used fear as a motivating tactic mm. to urge or exhort people to do particular actions. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to speak directly on what this movie is trying to make people do, but fear is not something that we're supposed to be ensnared in as mm. Christians and mm -hmm. to, to be guided in the way that we act and, and our actions towards other people. And so if, if we as Christians find ourselves falling back on this, I, mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a time for self-reflection and to say, mm. why is this the way that I want to motivate my brothers and sisters in Christ right now? What is the effect that this is going to have on our ability to love other people mm -hmm. um, and to mm -hmm. see them as God sees them regardless of how they see us and perceive us? That's a great note to end on. Yeah, I mean, we, we as a staff, we read the passage in one of the Gospels yesterday where Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples are out in the boat and they see him and it would appear very scary to see a man walking mm -hmm. on the water. And, mm -hmm. you know, the first thing he says is, do not fear, it is I. And we hear that message kind of throughout. We we see people in mm -hmm. scary circumstances and the, the, the response is, do not fear. And so, I, yeah, I like what you're saying, Morgan, about that not being like our first posture when we feel cultural pressure or don't know the future. Well, thank you both for your thoughts and for your feedback. We would love to hear from our listeners if you have seen the movie, if you plan to see the movie, if you saw the first movie, if you feel like we've missed some aspect of the story here. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can follow us on Twitter at CT podcast. You can also chime in on Facebook at facebook.com slash quick to listen. If you type in quick to listen <laughs> on Facebook, you'll find us there. Great. So we are going to wrap up with the segment that we like to call precious moments. 
And um, this is the time in the show where we go around and say one person, place, or thing that is giving us joy this week. So we will start with you, Alyssa. No surprise. I'm going to cite a TV show. I have just finished watching the upcoming episodes of the second season of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Nice. Which is a show that is full of joy, and I am very excited uh, to hear what people think about it once they start watching. Did you say that you met the cast like a couple weeks ago? I sure did. I interviewed them. Um, Ellie Kemper, Aaron who plays from the Kimmy. <laughs> yes, yep, and Titus and Carol Kane, who plays their their landlady, and they were delightful. And clearly, they're all best friends and talked wonderfully of one another. And I I asked them what what bands they would be if they were a band and they talked about it for a long time and sang. And so it was pretty great. <laughs> That's awesome. And then where can our listeners find more of your work, which you, you are quite the prolific writer. So there's lots of places that we can find you, but where's the best place? Yeah. I try to collect it all a week, uh, every week or so at, um, at my website, which is Alyssa Wilkinson.com. A L I S S A. And I am a prolific Twitter. So you can find me there too. Uh, and it's Alyssa Marie. Awesome. What about you, Morgan? What's your precious moment? Well, next week is Calvin's Festival of Faith and Writing, which I am attending for the first time. And I've heard only really wonderful things about it. And I'm really looking forward to meeting a lot of people that I know through the internet, uh, meeting them in real mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. IRL, as they say. IRL. And where can we find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Great. Well, my precious moment this week, I recently um, joined the board of Hope International, which is a Christian microfinance organization based in Pennsylvania, and they work in 23 different countries. And we have um, uh, several events going on this month tied to Will Creek Church, um, which is pretty close to us at CT. They're about 30 minutes away. Um, just drawing more attention to specifically their savings and loans groups, which is a, a form of economic empowerment in impoverished communities. And then we have our board meeting next month. Not that I'm like jumping with joy over the idea of a two day board meeting, but I am excited to actually meet everybody else on the board. And yeah, if you want to follow me, the best place is probably Twitter and I'm at Caitlin Beatty. So that is it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. And we also want to give a special shout out to associate editor Kate Shellnut. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and SoundCloud. And if you like the show, make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Give us however many stars you think we deserve. If you want to leave a comment, we would love that. That helps us a lot. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.